if you're visiting or you're new here, we, we're doing a sermon series using our 9 a.m. Sunday school curriculum from a company called Answers in Genesis. And it, it's walking through the story of the Bible so we understand um, the whole story of the Bible and how it fits into our lives, how it fits into reality, how to define all of reality through the lens of Scripture. And the neat thing about this curriculum is everybody, kindergarten through high school, gets the same lesson in Sunday school. So you can go home and have discussions about what everybody learned. And so we've decided for a time from the pulpit to give the same lesson just on a more adult level. So the whole family or the whole church can have discussions. And throughout the curriculum, there's these breaking points where there's a a review session. And for the adults, a special topic that might be a little too heady for the kids to handle. So the junior high and high school watched a video, perhaps, uh, this morning. Um, I know they've seen it in Awana, too, the, the junior hires. And... It has a gentleman named Bill Jack, who's a Christian apologist evangelist. And he has these four questions you can kind of ask people to reveal their worldview and help them to start thinking about why their worldview um, is insufficient and to adopt a biblical worldview. First and foremost, to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and eternal life. And then to begin building their life on the rock of God's Word. So I'm going to introduce you to those four questions this morning. And then we're going to look at how we can apply them in various situations. And then we'll see how the Lord Jesus himself in Scripture, this is how he talked to people. how And we're to make disciples the way he did. And so we need to understand this methodology here. I want to begin with um, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We're familiar with Jesus' teaching on the two houses. And the rain and the mudslide came after I wrote the sermon. But it it is very interesting. This is uh, in God's providence. Let me read the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus right comes as a babe in a manger. And if he only came to die for our sins, then... Why live 33 years? Why teach for three years? Why call apostles? Why train apostles? Why train disciples? Certainly, there's more than just He paid for our sins on the cross so we could have eternal life. He saved us so that we can fulfill our purpose here on earth. He's given us the great commission to reach others with the gospel, to make disciples And he preaches this sermon, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, and this sermon is really Jesus telling people, this is the way the kingdom really is. You think it's like this, the kingdom is really like this. He's revealing what his kingdom looks like. And when he gets to the end, he ends his sermon with a call to make a choice. That there's two ways to live life, one One is the correct way. One leads to blessing and eternal life. The other leads to suffering and destruction. And he uses the metaphor of building a house because everyone has to live somewhere. So we understand this metaphor. We relate to it immediately. So he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and might we say the mud slid, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, and we don't know if that's because they don't believe them, or they believe them, but just choose not to obey them. Either way, it's foolishness. I will liken him to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell. And great was its fall. Great was its fall. The, the metaphor of building the house is your life, right? Your life. 
Everybody's building a house. Everybody's living a life. You're all home builders. Whether you knew it or not, you are building a house. We can see your house. We see how you've built it. We see how you've decorated it. We see the uh, amenities you've chosen for it. But what we can't see is the foundation. What we can't see is the foundation, and that's the most important part. But we can start to see what's at the foundation based on what's happening to the house. Is it starting to slide? Is it cracking? Are there cracks in the walls? Is, is, it, is part of the house sinking? And so we can look at what's above ground to kind of determine what's going on beneath the ground. Jesus also uses the metaphor of, of uh, uh, a tree, right? What kind of tree? What kind of fruit tree? How do you know what kind of tree a tree is? By the fruit. How do you know what kind of root the tree is? If it's got apple roots, it should have apple fruit. And so that's another metaphor that we would understand. The important thing is the foundation. We tend to look at the house itself, which could tempt us to focus on moralism, just good behavior. And we could spend our time trying to get other people to behave well, right? Because it's more fun to live with well-behaved people. It's more convenient. It's less messy. We can all go about our lives if everybody would just, you know, get along. Rodney King theology. Can't we all just get along? Just leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. You live your life, I'll live mine. You believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. What's right to you is right to you. What's right to me is right to me. We have a word for this. We call that relativism. And it's kind of the spirit of the age. It's, it's the culture we live in. And we've been living in this philosophy for a long time now. Honestly, it's the default position of the human heart. It's the default position of the human heart. This is where Adam and Eve fell in the garden. They had built their house on the foundation of God's Word. God revealed truth to them. They lived their life according to that truth. If we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we will die. Very simple. Short, to the point, understand. Dying is bad. Don't want to die. Stay away from tree. You can have everything else here. Work hard. Tend the garden. Be in relationship. Name things, discover, have dominion. These are all wonderful things God's ordained for us to bring glory to Him. Then another voice comes in and tells them, Look, you surely will not die. You eat from this tree and you will be like God. Your eyes will open. You'll know good and evil. And you can start building your house on another foundation. Doesn't that sound exciting? I don't have to listen to somebody else's blueprints. Don't we all, in our heart of hearts, want to do things our own way? Because we want to be happy. And we think that if we do things the way we like them, we will be happy. God wants us to be holy. Our hearts are searching for happiness, often in all the wrong places. Why would people build on another foundation? It's simple. They think it will bring them Happiness, the desires of their heart. You want to understand human behavior? Understand, find out what it is somebody wants. What is it that you want? What is it that you think is going to bring you happiness and joy and satisfaction? We know biblically as Christians that only a relationship, a right relationship with the God of the universe will bring ultimate satisfaction unshakable joy. We lost our power for 24 hours. It's amazing how fast your joy can go out the window, right? It didn't take much. Like, wow, how humbling is that? Easy to, to praise God when you're kind of getting all the things that you want. Really put your faith to the test. Where is my joy? When the lights went out and the, and the mud slid down and people lost their car, did you lose your relationship with God? Did you lose your salvation? Did you lose your heavenly blessings stored up for you? Did God cease to love you? Did He abandon you? No, none of these things are true. Isn't that wonderful news? 
No matter what happens down here, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. We have an imperishable inheritance waiting for us in heaven. I don't even know what it looks like, but it's better than this. And there's some pretty good stuff down here. I'm excited about heaven. But on many days, I'm not that excited. I want heaven on earth. And that is when I'm tempted to move my foundation and start building my house on another foundation. I know the house can look good for a little while, but it's only a matter of time before the winds blow and the rains come down and slam against that house, and it won't stand. That temporary gratification, that temporary happiness be gone like that. And sometimes not just gone, but replaced with misery. Oh, what have I done? Why didn't somebody stop me? Sure, people tried, but I wasn't listening. Understand that unbelievers are building houses too. Our job, our first job is not to teach them how to build the right kind of house. The first job is to point out the proper foundation. This was not an illustration, but I look up and I see Mrs. Walker, and I know you guys are going to be pouring a slab soon on your new house. Boy, is this built for you guys right here. So that foundation is oh so important. Of course, uh, we start thinking about what we want in the house and what kind of countertops and what kind of cabinets and what kind of flooring and what kind of... Nobody puts any thought into the foundation. I sure hope whoever's building the house put a lot of thought into the foundation. Jesus is telling us, you've got to put all your focus on the foundation. Forget about the accoutrements. Who cares whether you get a sectional or two-piece couch? If the house is crumbling down on top of you, being comfortable, it's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, right? It's going down. So... Isn't it true that many unbelievers have better-looking houses than a lot of believers? Right? Come on, let's be honest. There's some, some believers build their house in such a way that I'm almost embarrassed. To, that's not a very good testimony for Christ. Right? And you want to witness to unbelievers, and they say, well, if being a Christian means having a house like that, no thanks. I'll I'll stick with my house. But see, what both of those people don't understand is that your, your foundations are the wrong foundation. There may be those who call themselves Christian, but they're not really building their house on the foundation of God's Word, on the foundation of the Gospel. They've been told they were Christians. They grew up in Christian church. They're Christian-ish. They, they call themselves Christians. But their lives demonstrate something different. The fruit doesn't match what they claim the root is. Now, true believers, we're all in a state of maturity, spiritual maturity, are we not? And so, yeah, um, my house needs some work. So does yours. I'm in process but I'm learning to make sure the foundation is healthy. If my foundation is healthy, I will build correctly. I will, I will, uh, sometimes I need to do a little uh, DIY, right? A little do-it-yourself, but without the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, um, that house isn't going to turn out in a way that's pleasing to God. Even mature believers you would agree that you will have times in life if the correct temptation comes along, you will be tempted to add on a a room addition to your house on a wrong foundation. Okay, I see some heads nodding. You're tracking with me. So your house is fine. You have the right foundation, but given the right temptation, you can start building 
your life on will compartmentalize and say, I'm going to put on an extra living room in the back here, and it won't be based on God's Word. That's a dangerous place to be. Because you're convinced, I am building on the right foundation, but you've compartmentalized a little area of your life that you won't let God have access to. It's my little happy room addition over here, my, my secret little happy place I go to. And in essence, what you're saying is, yeah, I'm building on the right foundation, but I don't really trust and believe that that's going to give me the happy life that I want. But it's going to give me the life that looks good in church. And in secret, I have this other little part of my house nobody knows about. Well, when the rains beat against your room addition and it comes crashing down, it will rip the rest of the house down with it. So this morning, all those people are in view. We all need, as Christians, if you're a mature believer or a maturing believer, you need to examine your foundation. And you can use these four questions to do that. If you're raising children, you need to help them understand how to build on the correct foundation. Not just make moral children. Moral, moralistic children are just waiting for an opportunity to rebel. And they'll either rebel when they're out of the house and you're not watching, or they'll rebel while they're in the house because they're upset with you. You have to create an environment in your home and in your own heart where you can honestly shine that bright light on the foundation and look for the cracks and the flaws Everybody's got them. We've got to come to that realization. And we call this authenticity, transparency, all these words we use. Why do we have to use these words? Because nobody wants to be transparent and authentic. We want to hide behind our fig leaves and say, my house is just fine. You go back to your house. Stop looking at my house and I won't look at your house if you don't look at my house. And yet it's human nature to sit there and Check out everybody else's house. So be intent this morning, be resolved that as we go through these questions, you will first and foremost use them to examine your own foundation. And then as a family, help one another to examine your foundation. And then as God expands your circle of influence, as you make disciples, these are great questions to ask. And in evangelism, if you're intimidated by evangelism, these questions will help you because it's a conversation. It's not a turn or burn. You know, oh, they didn't turn. I guess they're choosing, you know. So I don't want to evangelize because I don't, I don't, I don't want to see anyone reject the gospel. Our mission, according to to the Bible from the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We're, the people are not the enemy. Do you understand that? People are not the enemy. We have an enemy. It's Satan. He is the father of lies. He has, for a season, God has allowed him to fill this worldly system with his lies, his deceptions, his false ideas. And it all started with that original lie in Genesis 3. Did God really say, you won't die? In fact, you'll have a better life if you disobey God and make your own foundation. Everything goes back to that. All the problems go back to that. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We are not beating people up. You cannot force people into the kingdom through brute force. You can't cajole your kids into the kingdom. You can't bribe them into the kingdom. You can't threaten people into the kingdom. We are not ISIS. Our weapons are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What, kind, what are these fortresses? They're these false ideas that 
entrap people. They think they're safe. They think they're in this safe fortress, but we can see that they've really built a prison for themselves. They think they've built this wonderful house and they're safe in there and happiness will follow. But because God has opened our spiritual eyes and given us discernment, we see that they are not safe at all. They're not safe from the storms of life. The whole building is going to come crashing down. I hate to see that happen to people. Because of my love and compassion for people, but honestly, in my own sinfulness, man, that is going to be a mess to help them clean up. And so, so much easier to help them tear down the wall brick by brick and rebuild than wait for the fall. But sometimes people won't listen until the house falls, right? The prodigal son, until he was in the pigsty and came to his senses. What had he done by then? He'd already squandered his inheritance. In the story, that meant the father had to liquidate a third of his land. He's never going to get that back. But he wasn't in a place where he wanted to listen. So the father said, okay, go build your house, but go do it somewhere else. Don't do that here. And great was his fall. But he came to his senses, he repented, and the father accepted him back. Ultimately, we don't want to see people suffer the ultimate final consequences of rejecting God's word. It's... it's a terrifying thought, but it's a truth. It's biblical truth that those who reject Christ will suffer eternally, separated from God. And so, Paul says, we are destroying these speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And write that down, type it out, in 50-point font and, and tape that all over your house. This is where the battle is. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That is what it means to rebuild your house on the right foundation. Right behavior follows right thinking. And we do this with love and gentleness, grace and humility, because we also were those who were building our house on the wrong foundation. And God in His mercy gave us spiritual eyes, opened the eyes of our heart. It's the only reason why our house is being rebuilt on the correct foundation and others' homes are not. We were just as stubborn as they were. And currently, even in Christ, all of us still have some of our own false speculations. We are addicted to our own ideas. We all think we're right all the time. You need to be gentle when you do this. Speaking truth in love, but firmness. Because the stakes are high and you understand that tearing down walls is going to need um, at least a sledgehammer, but nobody likes being hit with a sledgehammer. So we understand that. But we're not trying to win arguments for the sake of winning. We care about people. Nobody likes having... Somebody walked through their house and inspected. I'm looking at Will Greer, home inspector. They don't mind when you do, but maybe the person selling their house doesn't like when you come by, right? Your precious house, to have somebody come through and... No, no. Ooh, ah, ugh. So when it's the house of your life, how much more painful to have somebody come in. And so we need to be wise about how we go about this. But at the end of the day, it's better that it be done sooner than later, before the crash comes. You know you have changes you need to make in your life that you are putting off. 
Better to do it today than wait for God to force you to have to do it. It's always a bigger mess to clean up then. So here's the four questions. They said, for any given topic, these kinds of questions will help get past all the slogans, cliches, subjectivity, all the water cooler conversation, all the small talk we make. What do you mean by that? This is, define your terms. Are we talking about the same thing? When you, when you use this word, is that the same? Does that mean what I think you think it means? This summer, I got to hear Sean McDowell speak, Josh McDowell's uh, son, the, the great apologist. He met with the Atheist Society of Los Angeles. They said he could come in and, and sit in their living room and just have a conversation with them. And the number one complaint, he said, he said, what is the, what is the thing you guys hate most about Christians? And they said, you never listen. You never listen. Now, that may be true or, or not true, but that's their perception. I think they think that if you would just listen to us, you would leave your stupidity behind and join us. And we're like, I don't want to listen. Especially if you were converted later in life. It's like, no, I lived my life like that. I already know what, what that leads to. But everyone likes to be heard. And you can't honestly say to someone that I've heard you, I understand where you're coming from, but now I would ask that you would consider what I have to say. So learn to be a good listener as you go out and you talk to people, as you talk to your own children. I hear the same thing in the books on raising teens. Number one complaint from teens, my parents don't listen to me. They don't know me. They don't, even, they don't know what I care about. They don't know what I struggle with. They seem distracted. You don't get it. You know, and we're like, of course I get it. I was a teenager too, but that, that doesn't work when you're a teenager. That doesn't work. You can't just say, trust me, I've been there, done that. Let's skip past all the junk and get to the right answer. you got to walk with them. You have to listen. Let me give you uh, some some benign examples here, some ones that won't make anybody get defensive. Okay, so your kid comes to you and says they, they want a pet, right? Now, I'm immediately thinking no, because that's the way I'm built. No, because I'll end up taking care of it. Other, other parents are thinking, oh, I have to say yes, because... I want my kids to like me. They know which parent to go to first. <laughs> but instead of just saying yes or no, it's, hey, your child wants something. Their heart is now open. This is great time to disciple. Right? And you got, it's not just, well, what would Jesus do? Jesus wouldn't want you to have a hamster. <laughs> you can't just throw the Jesus card at them like that. That's, that's not helping them. So, uh, honey, what kind of pet? What do, you, what, do you, what, do you, what do you have in mind? You know, Is it a goldfish or like a giraffe? What are we, what, what are we talking about here? Which kid are we talking to? What is your child like? Are they responsible? You know, what... what So what do you mean by that? Listen to them. Listen to their heart. Why do they want a pet all of a sudden? Okay, so it turns out they went to, to Billy's house, and Billy had a hamster, and they held the hamster for like five minutes, and they're like, that's the greatest thing ever. i got to get me one of these hamsters. They don't know Billy never plays with his hamster, but because you came over and you were interested in the hamster, suddenly it's Billy's most prized possession, so... You got to get a hamster. They're awesome. Well, honey, I don't really know much about taking care of hamsters. Oh, it's really easy. Oh, well, how do you know that's true? How do you, how do you know? What do you know about hamsters? You know, 
Not, what do you know about hamster? You never raised a hamster. Knock it off, you know. Um, get them thinking, oh, well, yeah, I really don't know much about hamsters at all. They seem easy. I've, I've never owned a hamster. All I know is anything that doesn't look like it's a lot of work is. I know that much in life. What difference does that make in your life? Now, you, you know, that's not what you actually say. This is just the kind of question. It would look more like this. So, honey, why, why are you so interested in a hamster? You know, what do you, what do you think that would be like? Oh, it would make me so happy. <laughs> to have something to love and to love me back. And you're like, well, that's what I'm for. <laughs> But you're getting, you're getting to see into their heart. Oh, yeah, okay. And then what if you're wrong? Now, the way you would ask this might be, so, you know, what if in a week you get bored with the hamster and, and the cage is filling up with hamster stuff? <laughs> you know, or if the hamster gets sick or the... You know, they're not thinking about these things, so you kind of have to help them think through scenarios. What, what, because I really don't have the time to take care of your hamster, honey. You know, I already take care of your dog and your cat. <laughs> see how, see how these work? So now let's, let's take it up a notch. And I was trying to come up with an illustration that wouldn't make people too defensive. And I found that's impossible because any scenario I come up with, the Bible says there's no temptation that is overtaking you that is not common to man. So any scenario I come up with, even if I don't have a specific person in mind, here's someone or some five or ten people are going to say, oh, that is just wrong. They are using, they knew that about me. He, he's using me as an example from the pulpit. He said the counseling would be confidential. Hey, folks, there's only so many things we, we go through, really. It actually, it actually ought to bring us confidence. No, it's, it's not just you. It's, it's all of us. Who hasn't been discontent? Who hasn't been anxious? Who hasn't been ungrateful? I think I was all three of those things this morning. All at once, right? You get that way on preparing your family to get to church? <laughs> or just getting dressed. <sighs> I have nothing to wear. <laughs> Discontent, ungrateful, right right there. So l- let me give you this one. I, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine called. His pastor, it wasn't going well, and he just needed encouragement. And um, he's like, my, my whole church is against me. And you're like... You know, well, what do you mean by that? The whole church? You don't have anyone on your side in this thing? By the time a pastor calls another pastor, they've already gone off the deep end, right? Because we don't like to admit to each other we're struggling, having to forbid. Pastoring should be easy. Nobody, nobody really appreciates me. Well, well, how do you, how, how do you know that's true? Did, like, everyone, like, write a letter and sign it? (laughs) Or is it Pastor Appreciation Month and you only got three cards? You know, what, what, what's going on here? They passed you over for a, you know, I don't know. You got to find out what's going on in people's heart. What, what difference would that make in your life? So you're not going to pastor anymore if people aren't appreciating you the way that you want them to appreciate you? God didn't call you to this ministry. God won't provide everything you need. Um, have you told your people you appreciate them? Are you modeling appreciation? You know, I don't start there in the conversation because that's nobody wants to hear that first thing when they come to you, even though you know that's where the conversation's going, right? When when you go to somebody and you're struggling. I would hope a good friend, a good counselor would eventually say, okay, let's, let's see what is going on in your heart. Where, where do you need to repent? 
But don't start there. Hey, Romans 8.28, man. It all works together for good. I got to go now. <laughs> um, you know. Well, you know, I'm thinking of leaving this church. Well, what if you're wrong? What if they do appreciate you and you go to another place and those people really don't like you? So I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to get more pastor appreciation cards. I'm like, okay, let me, let me pick something that... I mean, who hasn't felt loved or appreciated the way you think you deserve to be loved and appreciated? Come on, this is common to all of us. And so... Ask these questions of your own heart. And if, if, if someone calls you with this kind of thing, these questions will help you disciple. You're counseling without going to the professional counselor. God has given us the ability by His Holy Spirit and His Word to counsel one another, to disciple one another. Let's say you're, you're, you're at work and, and you hear about a tragedy on the news and some, maybe a, there's a bus crash and some people die and someone says, well, that's, that's just terrible. My heart just breaks for them. But at least they're all in a better place now. You know, wow, there's, there's an opportunity to witness. You know, you don't know that. That's, don't, don't do that. You know, but... Oh, what, what do you mean by a better place? Oh, my heart just breaks for them too. Oh, their families must be just devastated. But what do, what do you mean by a better place? Like, what's this better place? Oh, well, you, you know. <laughs> Heaven. The, the guy who, who does this video, he's talking to a kid at a college. He goes on a college campus and talks to the young people and asks them these questions. And one guy's a young guy. He's smug. He's smoking a cigarette at the student lounge, you know. And he's got life all figured out. He's like, reincarnation, man. I mean, that's... Can you imagine getting to come back and experience life from another perspective? That's got to be where it's at. Like, can you imagine coming back as a butterfly? And the, the apologist says, well, what if you come back as a tapeworm? <laughs> right? Which is, a, is another way of saying, how do you know? How do you know you're going to come back as a butterfly? Why do people who believe in reincarnation always assume they're going to come back as something wonderful? Or, I'm going to be an eagle. I'm going to be able to fly. Well, how do you know? Do you get to pick what you come back? How does this work? You know, don't be smug. Don't be sarcastic. You're helping somebody with an incorrect worldview, but it, it's precious to them. Maybe they put a lot of thought into this. They're looking forward to dying because they're going to come back as somebody famous. I've always wanted to be a great singer. I have a horrible voice. I'm coming back as, you know, Frank Sinatra or something. I'm going to be famous. I don't like this life. This life stinks. I'm coming back. I'm going to get dealt a better hand. What if you get dealt a worse hand? It could happen, right? I know you're raining on people's parade, but that's to, to save them from an eternity separated from God. Go ahead and rain on their parade. <laughs> the, kid, the kid got caught there when he said, what if you come back as a tapeworm? And his, his smugness went away for a second. Then he realized that he, that he had him. So he goes, hey, tapeworm wouldn't be so bad, living off other people's food. <laughs> Let's see how Jesus does this, how the Master does this. Matthew sixteen thirteen. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So now he's going to make them define their terms. Who do you say that I am? You know, when you're talking to people about Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus. I, 
I, I believe in God. I believe, I believe. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? Who, who is Jesus? Just because people say they, they know Jesus or they believe in God, that, that means nothing in this day and age. So just ask them to elaborate. If they really know Jesus, they're going to want to elaborate and talk about their Savior. And, oh, he's awesome. He saved me from my sins. And you know, he guides me. And Sweet, you're talking to a brother or sister in Christ. But if they say, oh, Jesus, he was an awesome teacher. Just a teacher? And on the conversation goes. Uh, Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, my Father in heaven. Jesus teaching us that ultimately truth has to be revealed to us, especially truth about ultimate realities who God is, who Jesus is, what does eternal life mean, what is sin, what is man's problem, what is the solution. And then a few minutes later, he says, the Son of Man is going to, uh, to be handed over and he's going to be killed. And Peter says, uh-uh, that's never going to happen. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. One minute you could be building your foundation on God's truth, and the next minute building a foundation on Satan's lies. Folks, this is where the battle is fought. It's a, it's a truth war. And souls are at stake. John 10.32. One of these occasions where they were going to stone Jesus to death. Can you imagine that being your life where pretty much every other day they're picking up stones I mean, if you're just a jerk, that doesn't count. I mean, <laughs> if people want to kill you because you're not kind. But they wanted to kill Jesus because he spoke the truth. And they didn't like the truth. He went to the truth keepers of his society and tore down the walls and exposed the foundation. So they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. And so Jesus, in essence without actually asking, what do you mean by blasphemy? He says, which good work are, are you going to stone me for? For which of them are you stoning me? I do things only God can do. So which one of those miracles? Please articulate, explain to me. What do you mean by you're going to stone me as a blasphemer? Well, you, you make yourself equal with God. You say you're equal to the Father. Well, I do things only the Father can do, so which one of those things are you going to stone me? So you see, you don't always have to ask the question word for word, but you're getting to the heart of the question. How do you know that is true? Jesus said to them, this was after he cleansed the temple, during the time when everybody's at the temple. They're coming into Jerusalem for Passover week. He cleanses the temple. A couple of religious leaders, I believe it's scribes, come to him and say, by what authority do do you do these things? And he said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. See, he's, he's asking them because he knows they didn't get baptized. So they assumed that the baptism wasn't from God. Because if it's from God and John's a true prophet, they needed to repent and go down to the water, down to the Jordan, and be baptized. But they weren't baptized and they were teaching others not to listen to John. So, they had already demonstrated by their actions what they thought the truth was. So, Jesus, in essence, is asking, how do you know? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, "Uh uh-oh, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men... They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. So they're going to lose their popularity with the people. So they're, they're stuck on the horns of a dilemma. 
They, they can't go with the truth because they're pragmatists. A pragmatist does whatever is the most convenient at the time. They don't have convictions based on immovable standards. The way they live life is, if it is going to bring me happiness or peace or um, popularity or whatever it is that their heart wants, then they'll justify their actions. And so they saw there was no way out of this, and they end up telling Jesus, we do not know the coward's way out. talking to, to Pastor Nathan years ago. He was having an online chat with, with somebody, an unbeliever. And it got to the place in the conversation where he asked, what is your standard of truth? Where do you get your truth from? You believe this, I believe this, they can't both be right, so how do we settle this? Either we're both wrong, but we both can't be right. My standard of truth is God, and there's no higher standard. And the other guy kind of argued around the point, and Nathan just kept coming back to the point, coming back to the point. Finally, the guy got angry and said, basically, I don't need to argue with a puerile idiot. So I'll use a 10-cent word. Purile, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't even know what that means, but I guess I'm supposed to be impressed that you have vocabulary that I don't have. You argue with a thesaurus open. It didn't answer the question. It just turned into an ad hominem attack the man. Well, you're an idiot. Okay, fine, I'm an idiot, but where's your standard of truth come from? He couldn't answer the question. And you will find that if you have discussions with people, this is where things can really get heated. There is no answer to this one. People might say, well, everyone knows that's true. What do you mean everyone knows that's true? That's not authority. Well, four out of five dentists agree, right? (laughs) Let's look at another scenario. The rich young ruler. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. We find out from the other Gospels this man was rich, he was young, and he had authority. Life sounds good for this guy. I would imagine he's probably good-looking, too. He's that kind of guy that just has the Midas touch. He's used to always being successful, Things just kind of go his way. And a guy like that, we learn from the story, assumes that if I'm not going to heaven, who is? And in fact, when at the end of the conversation, when Jesus says, look, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, the disciples go, if that's the case, who's saved? See, everybody's worldview then was that if you were saved, God would bless you with money and power and popularity. So Jesus stops him in the middle of his conversation. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Now this may not sound to you like what difference does that make in your life. The thing is that what Jesus can do that we can't is he immediately knows what's going on in somebody's heart. He knows this man loves money more than God. He knows this man has made an idol out of money. You might make a fairly reasonable assumption about somebody else, but beloved, listen to me. Don't judge another person's heart and think you've got it nailed. You can have a conversation with people, and if they're willing, you could say, hey, I kind of see these behaviors in your life that might indicate this is what's going on in your heart. And you can privately, in your mind, start to develop these kinds of guesses. 
But never, ever, ever come to the place where you think you have the power to know exactly what is going on in somebody's heart. You wouldn't want somebody doing that to you. How dare someone say they know what is going on in my heart? I don't even know what's going on in my heart half the time. That's what Paul said. I'm not even going to judge my own motives. I mean, we have to look at our motives, but at the end of the day, God will tell us what our motives were. So obey God's word, but it, it, I hope it doesn't come as a surprise to you that anytime you obey God's word, it is a mixture of the correct motives and incorrect motives. Nobody obeys this side of heaven with 100% pure motives. I preach the word because I want people to know God, to grow in their faith or come to saving faith. And let's be honest, I want to preach a good sermon. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to preach a stinker. So pride gets mixed in with it. And so you repent of it and you do everything you can and ask God to, to, to cultivate the good and crush the bad. But be careful about judging other people's hearts. But Jesus could do this perfectly. And so the question was designed to say, what difference will that make in your life if I tell you how to inherit eternal life? Because we end up finding out from the story that eternal life wasn't as important to this guy as he made it sound. On paper, well, of course, who wouldn't be concerned with eternal life? So Jesus says, well, you know, you've got to keep the commandments. Oh, that's great. I've done that my whole life. Great, you're good. Oh, by the way, one more thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And he couldn't do it. And so the question was designed to say, look, how is that going to improve your life if you have eternal life? We know what the answer is. It makes all the difference if you have eternal life, doesn't it? But for this man, it demonstrated that he just wanted one more feather in his cap. I have all the things I really want. Oh, and by the way, I've got my, uh, my eternal life all squared away. But Jesus taught us, look, we should want a relationship with God more than anything else that we would sell everything and buy that treasure in a field. A man's walking through a field, he sees a treasure. He sells everything he has to buy this field so he can have the treasure in the field. That's what the kingdom of heaven should be like for us. Finally, the, the last question, and this may be the most uncomfortable question, what if you are wrong? Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. Well, maybe someone does. Let me see. Anyone like to be told they're wrong? I got no hands first service either. Anyone like to tell people they're wrong? Come on, be honest. There's, there's a couple of us, us. Come on, we'll start a, an intervention group. Yeah. There's, there's just there's savvier ways to tell people than to come right out. And, and when I was wrong, it was really that I was misinformed. I didn't have all the information. <laughs> okay, more people can join the group now. Come, I know there's more of you out there. So, but that's the question we have to come down to when people say, "I have the right foundation and I'm building the proper house." What if you're wrong? The stakes are high. Are you sure? How do you know? What if you're wrong? James and John wanted to sit in the place of honor with Jesus on the left and the right. Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that which I am baptized? They didn't even stop to think. They just, oh, yeah. Yes, we can. What if you're wrong? What if you can't? Do you know? Do you even know? Now we're back to question one. Do you know what the cup is? The cup I'm drinking is the wrath of God poured out on all the sins of humanity. Can you drink that cup? No, you can't drink that cup. Jesus didn't even want to drink that cup. He asked that the Father remove that cup if he would. Are you sure you know what you're asking? You know, he ends up prophesying and saying, oh, 
you will be baptized with the baptism I'll be baptized with. And James and John were both martyred. Um, Mark 8.36, this is what it all comes down to, right, with this question. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What if that thing you thought was going to bring you ultimate happiness will actually bring you misery and destruction? What if the treasure you thought was the prize you wanted is the wrong prize? And by chasing after that prize, you will forfeit the real prize. Pascal's Wager. Blaise Pascal, mathematician, philosopher, apologist, Christian apologist. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ and build your house on the foundation of God's Word, you will live a good life. A good life. And even if it turns out at the end of your life that it wasn't real, you won't know. Fade to black. But you will have lived a good life and you will have benefited mankind. But if you do find out that this is true, wow! Eternal life. Treasures and riches beyond your wildest imagination. A face-to-face, perfect relationship with the God of the universe. Well done, good and faithful servant. If you reject God's word and build your life on a different foundation, you will not be able to stand up to the temporary storms of life. It is not a life well lived. And even if you get to the end of life and it turns out that the Bible was wrong, you won't know but you will have left a path of misery and destruction behind you. But if the Bible is right, it's too terrible to even consider those consequences. So he said, why why not bet on the Bible? It's a win-win. Now, I don't think it's the best way to evangelize people. You know, God wants us to choose... Christ because of his beauty and his who he is as a person, his awesome, his his grandeur, his his holiness. He wants us to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, not just put our poker chip on on black, not just to hedge our bets. Yet it's a it's it's not a bad way to say, What if you are wrong? Let's consider the consequences. What's at stake here? When we're chasing after our flesh, we think we're making good decisions. And it, it, we need the Holy Spirit and God's Word to reveal to us what is really at stake, what we're really after, and what the, the consequences really are. So I urge each one of us to examine our life, examine our foundation, but also be encouraged, equipped, and compelled to speak to other people, find out what's at their foundation, and, and, and warn them, but not only warn them, tell them about this glorious, true foundation they could build their house on. Let's pray together. Father God, for those of us in Christ, Lord, we thank you for whatever means you use to expose our faulty foundation. We thank you that you gave us spiritual eyes to see our desperate condition. And then we thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins so we can have a firm foundation, a salvation that cannot be taken away from us because we didn't build it ourselves. When you build it, it stands. When you build it, it's eternal, God. We ask you to forgive us for when we build on another foundation. And Lord, whatever it takes, 
bring, bring those trials into our life that we may shore up our foundations on the Word of God. And Lord, help us, help us, compel us, guide us, equip us to help others determine their foundation. That they could repent from building on shifting sand and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and begin building on the truth of His Word and on His promises. And for those who are in Christ, Lord, that we could help disciple, counsel one another with the Word of God. Help us day by day to tear down speculations and take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Do this by your power and your your spirit. We realize this cannot be done by human strength and intuition, and so we pray Compel us to pray fervently without ceasing for your help in this calling you've given us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.